And we're going to turn to the book of Luke and Acts, both. You can go to Luke 3 first. Tonight I want to talk to you about, the title of my message is, The Most Important Question Ever. There'll be a lot of important questions. Someone might say, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to work? What college am I going to go to? I mean, I looked on the internet today and a lot of people think they know what the most important question is. Um, Categories for it are life in general, career, business, uh, productivity, and they have all kinds of questions to ask you that I think are absolutely crucial. But I think what I'm going to show you from Luke and Acts, who wrote both of those books, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2, as it were, is a question that is going to be directed to everyone. And I want to point that out to you tonight. It's Missions Month. We want to talk about salvation tonight and how bio, the Bible sees salvation, what that looks like in our lives and the lives of those uh, that we witness to who get saved. And so I want to show you a pattern tonight. We have a number of slides that we're going to look at. And so there are eight of them. If you're taking notes tonight or you're going to take a look at some of these, you can bear with me. And, and tonight's going to be a little interactive. And so I'm going to need your help. I know you have a mask on, but you can say it really loud if you raise your hand or call on you or something like that. So I'm going to need you to do it. So if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to every one of these verses. He's going to show them on the board for us as we go. Um, the next slide has all of the uh, eight verses on it, and we're going to show that. So th- and that's the question. What is the question? Well, it's what shall I do? Um, in the first three, you're going to see the plural pronoun is used and talking about a group of people. What should we do? But that's the most important question, and it's a pattern that Luke uses all throughout his gospel and throughout the book of Acts in the early church. And it's the question that people ask when they're being evangelized, when they're getting the message of the gospel. You're going to see here John the Baptist uh, had that asked to him. Jesus had it asked to him. Um, Peter had it asked to him. And Paul had it out. There's four different scenarios as far as those who are the the, uh, the preachers, so to speak, at the time. And we're going to look at all those. So you have a little bit of an assignment here to begin with, if we're going to have this, make a good discussion out of this. And I'm gonna, we're going to show all eight of these verses. You, you already know what they have in common. It's going to say some form of the phrase or question, what shall I do or we do, or something very, very similar to it. I can tell you in the original language, uh, the two words in Greek are exactly the same in all eight of them. So even though there might be a slight variation at times in English, the same in the original is there. And we're going to do some things. We're going to do a little discovery, hunting, so to speak. We're going to do a little digging in Scripture tonight. And so here's the things I want you to look at and think about and see if you can discover as we read these verses together. There's a number of questions. And and, uh, the first one is, I want you to notice as I read these to you, or we're going to read them one at a time, Who are the people that the preacher, whoever it might be in in each section or each verses, who are they, who are these people? Uh, Give a one word description, you know, whether it's people in general. I I want you to look in very much detail who they are. The Bible is going to describe all of them and there's a purpose why I want you to see that tonight. So you're going to look at who it was and then I want you to think about, or when you hear these verses, number two, 
I want you to hear the language, and because all of them are about people getting saved, but it may not be quite the kind of language that you normally hear, or at least that you might emphasize if you were talking to someone about salvation. But I want you to take in the verbs or what people, when the answer, question is, what shall I do? The answer is, here's what you should do. And I want you to think about what those words are. If they're going to know God and be saved and wash away their sins, as one of the verses says, what will they have to do? So take a look at some of those, all right? And uh, then I want you to see at the end, the very common, the thing that's in common, I want you to see most of all, is the pattern of transformation. Because what I, here's my big idea. That's what pastors have to come up with. One sentence that describes the whole thing we're trying to get you to get tonight. And here's what it is. That salvation in Luke-Acts always involves transformation. So I call it salvation transformation. And, and I want you to look at, the third thing I want you to look at is um, in each passage... And we have to go a little bit further than what might be shown on the screen, and we'll do that on our own a little bit when we go through each one. There's always a transformation of the person who answers the question correctly, what shall I do, and they answer it. Their life is always changed in one way or another. But I want you to pay close attention on how their life is changed, because you might be surprised about what the pattern is. All right, so those are... The three things that we're going to look at, these are the eight passages. And the first three, thankfully, are all uh, John the Baptizer. He's going to do all of them. All right, so help me out. Raise your hand. I'm going to ask you. So let's go. If you haven't turned there already, Luke 3, um, we're going to begin. And the Bible says in verse 10, he just preached to them in verses 7 through 9. And let me read it for you. He said, therefore, the crowds... Who come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Underline that. He tells them, if you want to be baptized and you want to really know God, here's what you got to do. Bear fruits that are keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, in other words, don't think you don't need to repent. And don't think because you're Jewish that you're already a shoe in Okay, you're not. He says, we have Abraham as our father. Don't say that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, second time he mentions bearing fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, now he's going to say our phrase. And the crowds ask him, here's our question, what what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. All right, so let's do it. Here's the first one. Who is the question asked by in this text? What, what, what would you want to use? Uh, wink. Okay, good. The crowds, so generically. So let's start off right off the bat. A good observation is... Uh, there wasn't anybody at the river that day coming to be baptized that didn't need this message. And obviously, in particular, what kind of general crowd was it? It was full of what kind of people? Jewish people who had Abraham as their ancestor. But John the baptizer wanted them to be, no uncertainty, uh, it wasn't good enough. That you weren't going to be in with God just because you were born Jew, Jew and you physically were one of God's people, it wasn't enough. All right? 
What's, what does he tell them to do? So what's the verbs? What does he tell them? If you want to be right with God um, and you want to make sure that this baptism has meaning to it, what do you got to do? What does he say? Wink. Share. Yes. Okay. Share. What kind of sharing? <coughs> what kind of sharing? Yes, you're going to share. You have two tunics you give to somebody who doesn't have any. That tunic was the outer garment that you wore, especially in cold times. People had a better... If you had two, give to someone who has a need that's greater than your own. Right? So he said share with them. Okay? So bear fruits that... What? That look like repentance. Right? So here's what he says. So what are we looking at? We're going to see this large crowd of people who were Jewish needed to repent. And here's what he tells them. Listen. Here's what a life looks like that's repenting. You know what it is? Sharing with people whose needs are greater than your own. Number two, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, here's our question, what shall we do? And he said to them, (coughs) collect no more than you are authorized to do. So who's our second group? This is about as easy as it gets. What? Traitors. Traitors. Well, yeah. In particular, what kind of traitor? Tax collectors. These are Jewish guys, um, but the first group were religious. This group is not so religious because they're outcasts in every possible way, hated by everybody. Um, But what does he tell them to do? What's the answer to the question, what should we do? They are not to do what? They're not to overcharge people. They were, Rome, Rome said, you've got to get this much tax. But after that, everything that you collect is yours. And so that's why tax collectors were rich, because nobody knew exactly what the Romans asked them to get. And they always were exorbitant and chose, did way more than they needed to. And they lined their own pockets with it. So they were constantly ripping off their own people who were poor already and living off the backs of people who had nothing. Uh, and so here's what John the baptizer says. You know what repentance looks like? Equitable financial dealings with people as a tax collector. Notice he didn't tell them to stop being a tax collector. He said, be a good tax collector, right? Next one, 14. Soldiers also asked him, and we, here's our question, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages, so our third group is obviously, so we've got the crowd people who are Jewish and Orthodox. We have people who are tax collectors who are basically Jewish unorthodox. And then we have soldiers who are pagans. They're Gentiles. They don't even have Jewishness in them at all, nor are they following Judaism probably most likely at all. So we're talking to Gentiles. So we've got Jews and Gentiles, and we have men um, of all kinds of backgrounds, And so he tells them, don't extort people. You know, a soldier could walk by and because Israel was slaves to Romans, they could say, carry my backpack for a mile. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, if they do a mile, say, you you know, go two miles with them. So in other words, soldiers should not use their position of authority to make people do stuff or extort them or rip them off. And the reason was because soldiers didn't get paid a lot in the Roman army. And so they wanted to make more money off of Uh, the people who were slaves by taking advantage of them. And here's what John the Baptist says. You know what repentance looks like? You know what bearing fruit of really being a a, a saved person looks like? It looks like 
not ripping people off and extorting and using your position for your own personal gain. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, those are the first three. All the rest of them have the same flavor to them. What do you notice? Can you, you have eyes to see tonight? John the baptizer says, you want to get baptized, which was a symbol of entering the kingdom? You want to enter God's kingdom and be one of his kingdom citizens? He says, you got to repent. And repentance looks like, and he, you saw all three of them. What do all three of them, and you're going to see in a minute, all eight of them, what do they have in common? The people are different, soldiers, tax collectors, Jewish people. But what is it that he's asking them what's similar or the same about all of them? Yes. Did you see that? John the baptizer says, you want to be right with God and enter his kingdom? You better treat other people right. So here's what he says. Here's the sign. Here's what it looks like if you've repented. It shows up in your relationships with others. Now, that's not at all a foreign concept to the New Testament, is it? I mean, to any part of the Bible for that matter. What did Jesus say the two great commandments were? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second one is like it. Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Which brings us to the next one. Look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. You know this story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. But do you know why the story was told and what preceded it? Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 said, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, here's our question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay? So remember, the Good Samaritan story is not a story about how you should be kind to people who are in trouble. It's in there, but that's not the purpose of it. It is to answer someone who was putting Jesus to the test about inheriting. You know, when you inherit something in Israel, they inherited the promised land. God gave them this. And so if you want to be in God's kingdom and inherit the land and be a part of what all God's future is going to be, you want to know God and be a part of that? Here's what you have to do. So someone give me a brief 10-second summary, all right, 20, of the Good Samaritan story. And what it has to do with inheriting eternal life. Someone give me the story part at least. Yes. Did you raise your hand? No? Do you want to raise your hand? Okay, no, no. Someone tell me that you know the good Samaritan. Don't be afraid. This is everybody's. You got a mask on. No one even knows who you are. Yes. Wink.
Excellent. Excellent. So, the priest is the first guy who walks by, who's supposed to be holy. Everyone looked up to him. He walks by, can't get involved, quote-unquote, too risky, um, passes by, it doesn't do anything. The next guy who comes by is the Levite, who's an assistant to the priest, basically. It's the associate pastor and the pastor who come by, but the associate pastor, he doesn't do anything either. Um, doesn't sure if the thieves are still around or... He doesn't want to put the time into it. He's afraid of maybe being ceremonially unclean. I don't know what the motivation was, but he goes by. And then, as Wink said, the Samaritan comes by. Now, you've got to understand this story. It, it falls on us a little bit less than it did on the people. You understand Jews literally hated Samaritans. And I mean hated them in every way possible, religiously, spiritually, socially, in every way. So Jesus three times tells real stories or fictional stories, and the Samaritan is the hero, and the crowd would be angry at this. Because the priest, who is Jewish, and the Levi, who work in the temple, are the heroes. They're the righteous people. They're the ones that everyone thinks has eternal life. They're the people who keep the commandments, right? But he comes along and makes the Samaritan who doesn't even worship in the right place, only follows the Torah and the Pentateuch, and doesn't even worship in Israel, and they don't keep the law, and the, he's the guy that's the hero. Now, when they get to the end of the story that Wink so accurately told, what does Jesus ask the guy who originally asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, who was, yes, who was the one that was really neighbor to the man? You know what he had to say? He couldn't say the Samaritan because he couldn't get the word out of his mouth. You know what he had to say? The one who showed mercy. Mm. The one who did right on a horizontal level. See that? That's the guy who had it together. And And the point is this, not the priest not the Levite, but the Samaritan was right with God. And he proved it by the way that he showed mercy to someone, quote unquote, he should never, and he didn't just show mercy, I mean sacrificial mercy, right? So what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Not the answer that most of us would have given or a story that we would have told. Number four, Luke 18, if you'll turn there, and verse 18 Very, very similar question. Rich young ruler, that's how we know this man in this real story. And it reads, a ruler asked him. Now, most of the time, ruler means, the, you know, the only other time, well, not the only other time, but one of the times that ruler is used in Luke is to talk about a ruler of the synagogue. Um, Nicodemus was introduced in John 3 as a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus was the teacher, definite article in Israel. So so in other words, when you're a ruler, it's not a government thing. It's a religious thing. You are either the head of some synagogue or you are very highly esteemed in your spirituality, your understanding of God. You'd be a person that everyone looks up to, quote unquote, if you went to their church. All right. And remember in the story that to be rich in Jesus's time was thought of by most people is a very heavy hand of blessing from God. 
So you must be living right if you are rich. Okay? So let's read it together. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do? There's our text, a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Very similar to the chapter 10 one. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard that or this, he said to them, and by the way, how could he say that? How does Paul say in Philippians 3 that he kept the law and was blameless? They're not saying that they never sinned in any of these areas, but you could consider yourself someone who kept Torah because part of the sacrificial, part of the system that God set up with the commandments was the sacrificial system. The idea is that if you ever broke them, you did all the necessary sacrifices to be made right with God. And so they considered themselves blameless, not perfect because no one ever thought they were perfect or sinless. But he said, as far as keeping the law, I've kept them all. And if I didn't, I did everything God told me to get right, which not how very many people could say, right? So here's what he says. I've kept all those. But Jesus says, get this, um, you still, one thing you still lack. And the word lack is the same word in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, where it says, for all have sinned and come short. It's the same word, coming short, lacking. In other words, the guy said, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know, you've done a lot of good things, but you fall short. You don't measure up. You lack something. Now, what would you say if it was you and you were giving the gospel? Okay, it would have probably been something vertical. Look what Jesus says. Sell all you have Underline this, and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So what is Jesus, what's the one thing he lacks? He lacks, yes, he has a problem. He really doesn't love God like he thinks he does, and what is the proof of that? He cannot let go of his money and he can't give it to the poor he can't put someone else's needs above his own and he really doesn't want to follow jesus and be his disciple he listen to this he wants to claim that he knows god but he doesn't want to follow jesus ever sound familiar and you know what gets in his way he's an upper class american That's what his problem is. You know why? Because Jesus knew it from the beginning. He has a problem not on the outside because he's kept the commandments. He has a problem on the inside because he's got the wrong treasure. He's got the wrong treasure. He wants something more than Jesus. He wants something more than God in his life. And so here's a guy who kept them all, but again, horizontally, he has no care for the poor. Now, it's not... The question, what shall I do, is not in this text. But I want to pause and park here just for a second and tell you how vital this is. Two chapters earlier in a story that you're probably very familiar with in Luke 16 is the rich man and Lazarus. Do you know why 
the rich man, which would have been a shocker to the crowd that Jesus tells a parable. The rich man dies and goes to hell and is in torment. But the poor guy, who was the beggar who sat outside of his gate, died and went to Abraham's bosom. Obviously heaven at that point. And everybody would have been blown their minds because they think the poor guy's going to go to hell because the reason he's poor is he's ungodly, he's sinned, and God's punishing him. But the rich guy must be blessed because he's living the right life, and therefore he's in heaven. But when it's completely reversed, everyone is shocked out of their mind. And the rich guy's in hell, and he still can't get past his problem because he's still trying to order Lazarus around. Abraham, please send him to get a drip of water for me. Send him to my father's house. Hey, Lazarus, do this stuff for me. He's still bossing him around because in life he was in charge and Lazarus had nothing. And in hell, and he knows how wrong he was, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. But let me ask you, why do you think the rich man went to hell? Why do you think Jesus says, It's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why so many warnings from Jesus more than anybody and from Paul and others about the danger of wealth? Why do you think Satan uses the prosperity gospel and deceives so many people who will end up in a Christless eternity? Why do you think that's true? Yes. Exactly. That's half of it. Riches take God's place in our life, and we love and want them more than him. Keep going. That's the vertical part. What about the horizontal part? What do riches do? They agreed. There is no servanthood or ministry or humility, and we feel like because we did something and cut a check that we're we're really in love with people and their needs, but we fool ourselves, don't we? And, and Jesus wants us, you know why the rich guy went and helped? He did not walk by every day and kick the man at his gate. He didn't make fun of him. He didn't spit on him. He didn't keep things from him. What did he do? Nothing. Nothing. And, and again, horizontally, he didn't love people with his money. He didn't. Let's move over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Luke's second volume, but he's going to keep doing the same question because it's his pattern how he shows real salvation has a real transformation. Acts 2.37 reads, verse 36 first, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made them both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he gave him the gospel, said, you know, it was you, you crucified Jesus. And he says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, here's our question, what shall we do? If we crucified Jesus, the Messiah, what should we do? How can we make this right? And Peter says, notice the words, these are more familiar to us. You know why? Because our salvation is usually propositional. In other words, you've got to believe this. And you've got to be, believe this and then get baptized. Those are, that's how we normally do it. Jesus died on the cross. That's how we say it most of the time. Repent. Again, like John the baptizer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's, nor, that's more in line with how we normally would say it or hear it or hear it preached. So they, they get saved, and the Bible says later on, those who received his word and were baptized, 
about 3,000 people on Pentecost. I mean, that's a huge crowd. Now, watch. What changes in their lives? You know what they do? They join a church. Right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, verse 42. What else did they do? They prayed together. They saw signs and wonders. And, and note, now watch. And all who believed, verse 44, were together, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. You see that? How, were they, how, were, how did they demonstrate they were saved? They did repent and they were baptized. They believed and confessed Jesus. Their sins were washed away. And what did it look like? It looked like they were devoted to their church. And they were at the services. And they prayed. And they were in the scriptures. And they obeyed the apostles. Right? And they loved each other. And they distributed to people's needs. And to the point, how much were they willing to do it? Well, they sold their stuff. And when it says possessions, it meant their land, which was their right to inheritance in Israel, their houses. I mean, they were going down to bare bones so that other people could make it. Why? Because that's what it looks like when you repent. That's what it looks like. You come to church, you get involved, you're part of a community, and you demonstrate your love for other Christians as you do it. Acts 16 and verse 30. And the jailer, verse 29, called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, here's our question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, here's the propositional truth. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's right, isn't it? Put your faith in Jesus. I'm sure there was more to it than that sentence when he explained it to him, but that's what we get. But what changed in his life? What did he do? This is a Gentile Roman jailer. And by the way, watch what he does next, because what he does next is risking his life. It doesn't seem like it, but if you were a Roman jailer, you had to keep everyone in your charge, and if anyone got out or escaped, they would automatically execute you. They would cut your head off. Okay, And if you couldn't be accounted for and you were not on your own duty, doing your duty, the jail was here, the jailer lived here. That's how it worked. Okay, So here's what he do. He gets saved, he believes, his household gets saved. Now watch what he does. And he took them that same hour. You know it's past midnight, right? Because that's when they had the earthquake. At midnight they were singing. So we're, we're at, let's say we're at one in the morning. He took them the same hour, the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. He brought them up in his house, set them in his house, set food before them, and rejoiced along with his household. So what does he do? Well, he washes all their wounds that he might have been the one who inflicted them. And then he takes them over next door to his house, introduces to them family. His family all get the gospel. They all get saved. And that very night, I don't know where, but they got baptized, all of them. And he gave them a meal and he showed hospitality to them. What changed? His whole view of Paul and Silas. And he showed it 
his view to God changed because now he's helping God's servants and he's washing the people that he had locked up. And if the Roman soldiers or authorities catch him, he doesn't care. He's changed. Totally changed. Lastly, Acts 22. This is the third version in the book of Acts of Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus's conversion. In Acts 22, verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he answered to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who are with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, here's our phrase, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go in Damascus, and there you should be told all that is appointed for you to do. So what is Saul doing? He gets saved, he gets baptized, the scales come off his eyes. He's going to be baptized by Ananias. He goes into town. Ananias tells him. And what does he do? He starts loving and giving the gospel to the people in the very town he had went to kill and have imprisoned. Now he is risking his life to give them Jesus. Do you see the whole pattern? Here's the pattern of salvation and transformation. It's that, what shall I do to be saved? How can I be right with God? And the answer to it is... Believe God, believe Jesus, he died for you and Rosie. all the propositional stuff is true, but here's the reality of Luke-Acts, here's the message, that the propositional stuff is meaningless unless the practical stuff is expressed. Unless the truths about believing in Jesus and being baptized and publicly identifying him demonstrates itself in a life of repentance that looks like how it does in treating other people, here's what the Bible would say. It isn't true. It isn't true. I'm going to close with, and you don't have to turn there. You know the passage. In Luke chapter, I mean, sorry, 1 John chapter 1, in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, there's three conditional phrases, if. And one of them says, if we say that we know God, and we hate our brothers, what does John say we are? A liar. So what he says, if you disconnect the vertical from the horizontal, you don't know God, because all it is is words, he says. Listen to this. You know this verse. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, listen to this, we have fellowship with him. That's not what it says. You'd expect it, but it's not what it says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, vertically, we have fellowship what? With one another. See how he connects it? If you have this vertically and you're in the light, here's the expression that you're in the light and not in darkness. You have fellowship with others. You are partners with them. You have things in common. Despite all the disagreements, all the differences that you have, here's what we know. And here we love each other in a different way. Folks, we need to examine that in the day in which we live. The way that we treat each other, talk to each other, can I say social media each other, talk, do all the things that we're doing, and people who disagree with you about politics, people who disagree with you about all the issues that are taking place in our day, you know what the demonstration is that you know him? 
how you treat each other. How are we going to reach people and evangelize people and bring the question, what shall we do to them? How are we going to bring it to them if they don't see any difference in us? That's what missions is. Missions is you have answered the question rightly in your own life first. Not just that I come to church and know my Bible and pray every day and have devotions. That's the vertical. But if it doesn't turn into an impact, the way, an influence, the way you talk, treat, talk about, talk to on the internet, whatever, to other people, it isn't real. It isn't real. It is the most important question ever. What shall I do? And let me tell you this. If you've answered that question propositionally, I believe all the right things. Don't take any stock in it because James says the demons believe and tremble. But the, notice the context. Have you ever read the context of that verse? It's about faith and works together. The devils believe. It says, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And the, and the text is, if a man has need, and you say be warmed and filled and go on your way, but you don't do anything to meet that need, here's what he says. Your faith is dead. It isn't real. Oh God, help us tonight, right? Help us to examine the kind of faith we have. And how have we, not with our lips, but with our lives, how have we answered the question, what shall I do? Let's pray. Father, help us tonight. Uh, We have asked that question at one point in our lives in the past for those of us who know you. But we're asking tonight that you'd help us in a fresh and anew to, to live it out. To be able to see, Lord, that we need to show that we're right with you vertically by how we treat others horizontally. May we not forget that, that knowing you means a new confession, Jesus is Lord. It means a new conduct, how we treat others. And it means a new community because we're part of a people of God that are working together in fellowship to be able to tell the world that they need to ask the same question too. Help us to be that people for your glory and for their good, for Christ's sake. Amen.